Hello and welcome to the Law Blacks one-to-one podcast. My name's Chris Allen. I'm the managing partner of Black Solicitors. I've worked in West Yorkshire now for over 25 years and during that time I've met lots of interesting people. And over the next few weeks I'll be catching up with some of those people to share with you some of their opinions, advice and hopefully entertaining stories. I hope you find the interviews interesting, I hope you find them engaging and even educational. As ever at this point in the podcast, uh, I tip the hat to Pete Bott of Deuce and Charger because he's the nice chap who used to work with us and allows us to use the music at the start and the end of this podcast. So Pete, thanks again. And if you like uh, drum and bass music, and I'm sure my guest today does, if you uh, go track down Pete, you'll see he's got his own podcast these days, let alone the music. My guest today is David Parkin. He is a well-known character in the uh, Yorkshire scene. Uh, I suspect he might say even beyond there. And I've got a list of things that he does now, which is event host, journalist, blogger, media trainer. And the reason where, uh, and the reason why I've invited him on, he is one of the founders of the Business Desk. So, uh, David Parkin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Chris. Delighted to be here. Now, David, our paths crossed through business over the last, well, 12 years, I suspect. Um, and I first met you when you were involved in the Business Desk, which is a, a daily email that is sent out to businesses and, well, anybody, I suppose. Um, and I think a lot of people in Leeds particularly will know you for that. But just tell me a little bit about the background. How did you even get to that point? I started out as a journalist. I'd always wanted to be a journalist. Both my parents were involved in journalism. Uh, If I I was bright enough, Chris, I'd have loved to have been a lawyer. Uh, But I I did find um, the work experience I did was fascinating and that in journalism every day is different. And I loved that idea of sort of leaping out of bed and not quite knowing what was going to happen that day. Um, My mum was a a newspaper journalist, uh, columnist, um, who I think I ruined her career because uh, she was offered a, a, a big job on the Daily Mail and another one on the uh, on the Daily Express as a female columnist, and uh, decide she decided to settle down and have a family, and so uh, I ruined her, her what would have been a very successful career. And my dad was a, a press photographer and worked. Uh, all over the country Um, and so for me that seemed to be the natural place to go started work on my local newspaper in Derby uh, you know 8,000 quid a year and you you, all you're doing is looking for your next job to try and get a pay rise Um, and I eventually ended up in in Cardiff which was my dad's home home city and which I'd known as a kid and so for me to go down there was something that I never realized was an ambition but to be down there amongst people I knew was great I started on the South Wales Echo, and uh, which is the local evening paper down there, and then I was offered a job as a business reporter on the on the daily newspaper in Cardiff, and I said to them, I don't, I don't have any. I'm not good at maths. I'm, I wasn't good at economics. I don't know much about business. And the editor said to me, You don't have to. It's all about people. Right. You're interested in people. And he said, And you wear a suit, so you'll fit in. <laughs> and um, and it was more money, so I went off and did it. And it's the best thing I ever did because I was never an investigative journalist, a sort of foot in the door. No, um, a door stopper or a door stepper or whatever. Exactly. The I, was, I, was, I was never going to be working alongside the paparazzi. And, and business journalism, particularly in the regions, allows you to build your relationships. And I enjoyed that. 
So that was the start of it. Got into business, uh, covering business. Loved meeting entrepreneurs, fascinating people. Um, worked there for a couple of years. Went down to London to work for them in uh, in in um, as the London editor of the Western Mail, which meant I was you know one day I was covering a takeover in the in the city. Next day I was interviewing Tom Jones. It was that bizarre, really. Right. But just a you know I was the a, a Wales's man in London, and. From there, I was I was offered a job by I'd briefly worked at the Yorkshire Post um, uh, before I got down to London, and I worked for a great editor called Tony Watson. And when the business editor left, he rang me up and offered me the job. And I said, "I'm very settled in London. I've just bought a flat." And he said, "I'll give you a week to think about it." I said, "I don't need a week." And uh, he said, "Well, just have a think about it." And I thought about it, and I just thought the opportunity to cover business in Yorkshire. Uh, based in a city like Leeds was just too good. And when, and when roughly was that then, David? That was uh, 2000. Right. And and I rang him back the next morning and I accepted the job. And it was the best decision I ever made. I came up here and uh, the Yorkshire Post was was probably the the best regional newspaper mm. outside London. It was there was great people to work with. Um, and Leeds and Leeds in 2000 had had the property boom of you know I look back I started working here. 94, 96 was the first flat on Park Row being sold, I remember, and and the property boom had started. So there were things happening in Leeds in 2000 when you arrived. There were, and I think I uh, I said, right, I'm going to I'm going to do city living. I'm going to get rent an apartment in the city, and 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 that was all very well, but everything hadn't caught up with it. So you had to walk ages to find an all night garage to get your milk and your bread and things <laughs> like that. But um, but Leeds was you could tell it was on the cusp of something, and and I think you know my job. The editor, Tony Watson, said to me, you're an ambassador for this newspaper. I don't want to go and do speeches. I don't want to go and uh, meet people. That's your job. And, and he forced me out to do it. And, and it's the best thing that ever happened because I, I couldn't do public speaking. Um, I, I was probably quite um, inexperienced. And so when you're thrown in at the deep end, you have to do a bit of swimming. And, and it, it was great. So the role then was more out and about, less writing, less it was, copy? Yes, there was, it I, I mean, we had... Two people based in London. There were four journalists on the business desk in uh, in Leeds at the Yorkshire Post. So um, my job was to get out there, and I got a bit of a reputation for going out for lunch a lot. But that was where you met people and where you yeah. built your relationships and contacts. And I virtually went out every night as well. I never turned down an invitation to a uh, a black tie dinner or a chamber of commerce event. And 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 I spent three years just building a, a network, which was. Um, I really enjoyed, but I didn't realise how valuable it would be no. later on. Well, we're going to come on later on, I think, to a few tips for people or for the next generation or the next David Parkin. So let's just save that one for a little bit later. This podcast is, needless to say, sponsored by Black Solicitors. Black's is a law firm based in Leeds, and we provide a range of commercial, property and private client services to clients throughout the United Kingdom. Obviously, I'd love you to enjoy this podcast and then use our services on any legal issues you have going forward. If you visit lawblacks.com, you'll see the kind words that existing clients have had to say about the services we provide. Now, back to the podcast. So you go back to my first point about meeting you uh, when you were working working or owning the business desk. Just talk to me about talk to me about that. How did that come about? To be honest, 
when I was working at the Yorkshire Post, I absolutely loved it. But in the back of my mind, I was always aware that I was working in a dying industry. Mm. And, and I, I accepted that I could probably get to retirement, staying in newspapers and having a good job. But I just thought, is that good enough? Is that what I want? And I've just felt there was a different with the rise of the internet and, and people starting to have phones and being able to get... Um, you know the Wi-Fi everywhere. Well, instantaneous access to news. Absolutely, and news I realised was happening. It was happening every minute, not yeah. every day. And newspapers were reporting today's news tomorrow. Yeah. And I felt that we could, you know, our, our little catch line that we came up with at the business desk was tomorrow's news today. And because we could deliver that news, when we could look at the stock market and tell you what Yorkshire firms' results were today so morrison's results we could send it you within an hour of them hitting mm. the stock market we could break news by sending out emails and texts and and so for me i just thought well right that's a way of delivering it how can we make money out of it yeah i felt that you know there was an acceptance that news was free at that point yes you had to buy newspapers but if we delivered it nobody would pay for it so we had to get that paid for and and our view was that basically you could you could sell advertising on the basis of the quality of your readers. So not the quantity, not the number of people looking at it, but the quality of those people looking at it. So we were able to sell advertising um, on the basis of the information we had about our readers, who were decision makers within their businesses and organisations. So your background in business, as it were, was why you aimed at the business market. You didn't just say, look, we can just do an online newspaper here and... No, I felt that we had we, we could, um, obviously that was where I specialised, but equally I felt that that was where we could get a really high quality audience and I felt that was something that advertisers would pay for. We could put on events for those people as well um, and get sponsorship through that. So it was, and, and you know, the first day we did it, we started in a small office in the Round Foundry Media Centre. There was three of us in, in Leeds on, you know, a cold November morning in 2007 and we didn't have any readers. We just basically had my list of email addresses of my contacts I'd made at the Yorkshire Post. Sure. And we, we went from there. Yeah. And, and how did that develop, the pace of that? Just tell me about that. Because we look back now, don't we? It's either with hindsight as to how, how people do things and everybody gives advice with hindsight. But just talk to me about the pace of that business then for the first few years. Did it? Were you surprised? Did it take off? Was it a slow burn? I think we hit... We were very lucky. We had a. Uh, we said we wanted to start off with advertisers already on the site, and and we had we we basically leveraged our relationships. So we went to uh, you know the banks, the law firms, the accountants, and said, "Will you will you back us? Will you will you take a punt?" We were very lucky. We knew somebody at uh, Jaguar, and they just launched the new XF car. So we had a brilliant f- uh, video advert of the new XF that looked like a clip from a James Bond film so it gave us a lot more credibility than we deserved but all of that started we hit all our we set some quite low targets but we hit all of them quite quickly I think if there's one mistake we made we didn't get a commercial person in soon enough Mm. so it was me running around trying to talk to my contacts to say will you advertise with us Um, whereas we needed a deal doer you know, a, yeah. a door kicker that could could go out and and leverage those relationships. So we left that a bit a bit late, and and um, I think as a journalist, you, you're always probably slightly backward at coming forward to ask people for something yeah. other than information. And when if we if I'd sort of teleport back in time, I always use this sort of analogy with people. If I went back in time, 
and sat down with you guys at the start of that, would would I would we would we have been discussing we should have five? We'll, we expect to have five competitors in two years. Twenty competitors doing this. Soon there won't be a newspaper. We'll just this will this is there'll be lots of business desks. What what were you thinking? How did you think things were going to pan out? I thought that I thought we could have been blown apart in our first six months. I really expected something like the Yorkshire Post to launch online and they had the resources to do it. They were a big national group and if they had have done, we'd have got nowhere. But I couldn't believe the complacency of a lot of the the media players. They just, um, they thought we were idiots um, and they they couldn't see how you could make money. They just could not see that. And it was pretty sick. People, People kept asking us, how do you make, you know, how are you going to make money? And we said advertising, and they'd always nod and say, yeah, oh, I get it now. But the newspapers had enough problems of their own that they couldn't, they just couldn't see a way to investing in a new model. Yeah, I was going to say, couldn't quite move to that innovation. Yeah. Because it was pre-iPhone, of course, wasn't it? I mean, oh, I it was. there's a million types of phones now. But you know what I mean? If you come in on the train now, everybody's on the phone all the time, aren't they? Yes. Whereas... In the early days, I think I'm right in saying I would I would look at business desk when I got to my desk. Yeah, it was very much. Yeah, we we came out at sort of eight eight thirty in the morning, and the idea was that it was there waiting for you when you got to your desk. Um, and then obviously people got phones, and, and I remember one uh, accountant taking great pride in telling me how he parked his car and then walked to work reading our headlines and how yeah. he avoided uh, all the hazards in on the pavement yeah. and everything. And, but by the time he walked through the door of his office, he was up to date on that day's news. And it made me quite proud. And a lot of people would say, oh, we won some business through reading one of your stories. And, and uh, you know, we rang up this company and we got some work out of them. And, and I used to say, somebody said, what do you think of that? I said, it's great. We, we want to be a tool for the business community. You know, yeah. we want to be out there providing intelligence on the market for them. So... Did you maintain your enthusiasm for, for that business? How, how, how long was that running for with I, you at the helm? I sold it in uh, 2014, me and my business okay. partner, Paul Snape. Um, so I you'd done seven years at that point? I'd done seven years. Yeah. And it's funny, I'd done exactly seven years at the Yorkshire Post as well. And I don't yeah. know whether that's, only, that's my limit. Yeah, don't for, tell the people you're in work. business with now. Well, exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, but I think it became... It came, very hard. We we'd ex- we expanded quite quickly. So we expanded into the northwest. We opened an office in Manchester, uh, recruited the business editor of the Manchester Evening News. We went to Birmingham. We recruited the editor of the Birmingham Post. So the model was we'd just go in and get the best connected um, business yeah. journalist in yeah. that in a region and put put some people around them. And we had to we had to dilute our shareholdings to do that. And so we ended up. Not not in total control of the business, mm. and so there were shareholders that, um, by the time I sold out, they wanted out. One, uh, but in fact, one of our um, investors in Birmingham, Mark Hales, he wanted to buy out the whole business, mm. and um, he wanted a hundred percent ownership. So it was a case of right, okay, you either sell out to me, hundred percent or not at all, and that actually gave me an opportunity to to just take a a, a salary which mm. had not particularly had for a few years to have a little bit of certainty on on my own personal cash flow and and to just sort of get my breath back after seven years of growing a business and I stayed on for 18 months um, in that role 
but realised that the business needed to move on and I needed to move on. You know, I'd taken it as far as I yeah. could. And, um, and for me, I thought there were other opportunities out there. So now, again, a few years on from there, and you look at the, obviously there's Business Desk, there's Daily Insider, BD Daily. You know, there's a few that have there are. continued and survived and do well and still uh, and clearly are looked at and seen by people. But there doesn't seem to be, from my perspective, 15 of those. You know, it hasn't, no. uh, which in a way I'm kind of surprised at, but then I suppose, uh, or, I'm, or should I be surprised? Has, has, has that sort of world of, in, you know, early morning email news has that developed any further than you thought it would i think it's gone down a slightly different route um there is less traditional advertising and marketing budget around and that's why i think there's not 15 of them chris um and if you look at most of their models now their principal source of revenue is events it's putting people together um and there's only so many events for people Mm. to go for um so i i I think it's it's gone down that route. How it will develop, I'm not sure. If you know, if if somebody came along and consolidated two or three, you know, yeah. I always thought one of the newspaper groups would just buy up, buy up possibly the business desk. That was what we we expected early on. Yeah. Um, and you know, we were very fortunate. We were featured in uh, three years after we launched. We were featured in I think we were page three in the Financial Times as a sort of. Um, at, at the opening of our Birmingham office, they called it three brummies in a broom cupboard in Birmingham. And, I, and, I, and somebody said, are you, are you embarrassed about that? I said, no, I'm absolutely delighted because our model was low cost and, um, and it was all about getting the news out there as quickly as possible and doing it in as efficient and cost-effective way as possible. And I think newspapers just have not managed to find the models that will work for them. And people are willing to do have a go themselves. Listen, we're doing a podcast now, aren't we? There's no marketing degree from this side of the table, believe me. And similarly, all the social media use that people use now, a lot of businesses are using it. I mean, we had a a lovely spell where we were one of the few law firms using social media, but now everybody does. And so everybody's willing to do that, aren't they? I think they do. Everybody, everybody, like you say, is is a a broadcaster, a creator of content, not necessarily a journalist, I think. I think sometimes, um, you know, you still need, professional journalists to to sort of boil down the information and provide it in the right way but I think everybody can create their own content these days and I think that's that's exciting it's good you know I don't look at it and think um that's that's a bad thing I I just think that maybe people are becoming more selective they pick Mm. and choose what they want to read and listen to and watch so talk to me about Leeds you've worked here obviously quite a long time now and there's all sorts been going on since since 2000 how where's your confidence level let alone the let's not get on to the election but in terms of confidence for the region for Leeds City where are your thoughts on that at the moment I think I'm very confident I've always been confident in in Leeds and and the region it's you know it's got a great pedigree in terms of uh, enterprise and entrepreneurship it's you know it was almost the the seat of the industrial revolution 200 Mm. years ago Um, and I think it's developed since I think where where Leeds sometimes gets a bit ahead of itself is when it starts to compare itself to other cities, so when it sees itself as equal or better than Manchester. And I, and I think it needs to... Um, and I think possibly the development of the Northern Powerhouse means that it sees itself in a wider context now. Um, but I think there's lots of exciting things happening. I don't think 
Channel 4 arriving is the be-all and end-all, but it's a great catalyst to, mm. to, to put Leeds on the map as a, as a creative hub. And it's who Channel 4 attracts here to, to surround itself yeah. with that I think will make a difference. I think I see, I see stable uh, politics, which is good. Mm. Uh, yeah, you mentioned the general election. Who knows what's going to happen? Um, but if the, all the politicians I've been listening to have been making serious noises about investing in this region, in the north of England. I mean, we desperately need improved infrastructure, transport. Mm. Um, we just need a fair crack of the whip. And and I just think uh, if we can get beyond, uh, you know, the, the whole um, Brexit uh, conundrum, then at least politicians can focus their mind and their money on improving the, the balance between the north and the south. Yeah. And do you do you spend much time down in London these days? Or, or? Yeah, I'm down there quite regularly. Um, it's funny, you know, if you end up in a place like Mayfair, uh, it's another world, isn't it? It's yeah. a total another country. You could be you could be in any international city in the world, and I, and I think that um, uh, we have to, you know, there has to be a balance. People from Yorkshire have to go to London and win business, but they also have to bring it back as well. And uh, I, I, I love London. I lived there for a couple of years and uh, still enjoy going, but it's always nice to come back. Yeah, I'm on the seven o'clock train tomorrow there, actually. <laughs> um, when I was looking at your bio uh, on LinkedIn, it, and, and I, I assume this anyway, you, obviously over the years you've interviewed lots and lots of people. I mean, I saw you the other week at the... Uh, at the arena interviewing some, some so I think they were the Bake Off the, people, the weren't Bake they? Off yeah, and they were good, and, you yeah. know. And that looks easy from, you know, I'm sat at the other table watching, oh, there's David just, you know, sorting that out and doing, uh, chatting away merrily. But can't always be that easy, is it? How do you deal with those interviewees who don't say much? <laughs> Uh, that is always uh, you try and get them to talk about themselves or you get somebody like Ken Bates who I interviewed when he was uh, chairman of Leeds United and the first thing he said to me was I've won 400,000 in legal damages off journalists and I'd like you to be my latest victim <laughs> and uh, and so that sort of is a bit of a heart in the mouth moment but you know for me it was a case of then arguing why I'd written what I'd written was fair and accurate, and him accepting that, and then buying me a few drinks and uh, telling me his story. So it's yeah. about it's getting through those difficult moments. Uh, hopefully, you know, as a journalist, if people are uh, have agreed to speak to you, then they're willing to talk about things. I always like to put them at their ease. I'm not trying to to shock them. No. Um, I did once get thrown out of a, a, a chief executive of a quoted company's office when I asked him uh, why his salary had gone up uh, three times in the last three years, um, but the profits of the company had gone down by uh, a significant amount. And he said, I thought you were here to talk about my racing racehorses and my interest in racing and I said we can do once we've uh, just once got we've past this small matter and so he said get out and, <laughs> and I wasn't proud about that Chris it was one of those moments where I thought I've actually failed as a journalist because I should have been getting him to talk about it fortunately I asked that question right at the end of the interview so yeah. I've got and I wrote a piece the following week sort of saying what had happened but equally saying it's not something I went out to do I don't I don't see it as one of my great moments in journalism and we've since uh, seen each other, shaken hands. He's very successful now again, and he's admitted to me it was a tough time in his life, and uh, he shouldn't have reacted that way. So it's always nice to. I don't think I've ever made enemies in journalism, no. um, 
but I think I've given people a, a, a fair and balanced approach when I've when I've interviewed them. So when I see you in action, I just think to myself, there's David, you know, looking in control of the situation. If I'd bumped into you five minutes before you were interviewing Arnie Schwarzenegger, would yes. you have been just as cool as normal? Or were, you, were even you thinking, well, this is a bit different? Well, if you'd have bumped into me five minutes before I interviewed Arnold Schwarzenegger, and I was the first British journalist to interview him um, when he became governor of California, and I was, I was on the 16th floor of the Ronald Reagan building in downtown L.A. I was looking out over the, uh, over the L.A. skyline, and I was thinking, wow, I've interviewed some big names in my career, but this has got to be the pinnacle. But I'm not, you know, I'm relaxed, I'm quite comfortable. And uh, then suddenly I heard this voice, booming voice behind me go, David, I looked round and filling the door was Arnie. He'd he'd gone out of his office. He'd been uh, in there having another interview. He'd obviously gone out of his office to go and get a drink or go to the toilet. And he, I was the last interv- interviewer. He was facing, and he, I, I went towards him, and my legs buckled from under me. And I think my voice went about five octaves high, and I went, "Hello, I'm David Parkin." <laughs> um, and he was, you know, when you meet famous people, I always think they're never as impressive in the flesh as as mm. they are when you see them on film or on television. But he was. He was huge. He filled the door. He was, uh, I think he was 57 at the time, a very smooth face. I'd, maybe he'd had some work done. Yeah. But he was, and he was highly intelligent. Uh, the interview was great. I really enjoyed it. He answered, unlike many people, particularly politicians, he answered every question to the point where you're always out going to ask supplementary questions. But he sort of asked, answered everything in so much detail, Chris, that I was left with, having to revert to my next question rather than going down a, a different yeah. route. And, the, and do you think that's because he was just being himself or he, he wasn't as media trained as a lot of the politicians are today? I think he was... I, th- I think a lot of people underestimate him. They hear his uh, Austrian accent. They, they know his... You know, they see this beefcake that was a, a bodybuilder. Yeah, Conan the Barbarian, you know. Absolutely. Uh, and the weird thing is he had the, his sword from Conan the Barbarian on his desk of his of his office, alongside his cigars. Just in case, you never and a, know. And a picture of him in uh, Terminator with his makeup on yeah. as well. But I think it was because people underestimate him, and he's actually a highly intelligent bloke. The Americans were very quick to point out that well before he went into films, he'd marketed himself within bodybuilding, he'd licensed his name for products and uh, equipment. He'd made millions before he'd even gone to Hollywood. So it was it was fascinating, and and uh, he was he brought a real refreshing. Maybe because he wasn't po- a politician, yeah. he just brought a common sense to it. Yeah, but ultimately you came away liking him. I did very much yeah. so. Yeah, I thought he was a a great bloke. We don't swap Christmas cards. No. Sadly, we never we never. But I I did every other journalist in those interviews were having to go in in twos or threes and I managed to get uh, one-to-one with him and, and uh, it was just one of those amazingly memorable things although I came back, wrote about it in the Yorkshire Post and the editor got a letter from uh, I think a pensioner in Bailden who said, what's that idiot doing over in LA writing about Arnie Schwarzenegger it's got nothing to do with me <laughs> Well there you go which brings me on to another question so over the years if you could, I mean you might say Arnie's one of them but in terms of all the people you have interviewed, if you could snap your fingers now and whether they're alive or dead and bring them back tonight and go out for dinner at any one of these lovely restaurants around here, who, who would you, who, you know, who springs to mind immediately? Who would you, who would you have? I think the, uh, the first one would be uh, Sir Ken Morrison, right. uh, who I was very fortunate to interview a number of times and I, uh, I found him 
a really down-to-earth, fascinating individual, full of uh, good humour, good stories. Uh, I was very lucky that I was invited on BBC Radio 4 to talk about him uh, on their obituary programme. Um, and, you know, he just he left you with good stories. He, he was one of these people, you know, his famous thing about I'd rather have two checkout girls than one non-executive director. <laughs> and I remember a bloke from the, the Financial Times interviewing about whether they were going to expand into Europe, and he said only for our holidays. And yeah. he, was just a, he just had so many down-to-earth, simple Yorkshire phrases, and it was why he was so successful. And I think he was, I think he was a little bit bruised by the experience he got of taking over Safeway, the city were very snobby about what was this Yorkshire grocer mm. doing, taking over this national business. But actually, he, he knew what he was doing, and yeah. he proved them all wrong in the end. So definitely Sir Ken Morris. And the other one would be another Yorkshire businessman, um, Lord Hanson, right. who was from Huddersfield, uh, was engaged to Audrey Hepburn in the 1950s. Well. Um very glamorous, six foot four, very good-looking guy. Uh, his father had a transport business. His grandmother had, had had pack horses taking wool from Yorkshire to Lancashire. He went into the family business, expanded it into Hanson Trust, knew all sorts of um, uh, stars. He'd, Lord White from Hull was his business partner. He, w- he went out with uh, Grace Kelly. Oof. So the two of them were extremely glamorous. I... I'd got to know him very late in his life. He'd retired um, and he'd, he'd gone to live in um, Palm Springs. And I wrote to him through his address in Who's Who. And I got a fax back saying, yes, you can come and interview me. Would you like to come to Palm Springs or shall I wait until I get back to Yorkshire? And I said, I'll come to Palm Springs. <laughs> took, that, took that to the editor. Yeah. Absolutely. And and, managed, and it, fortunately, he was, he'd been on the board of British Airways. So he was able to pull a few strings and get me a cheap flight. Mm-hmm. And off I went over there and I sat with him round his pool uh, with his coat of arms on the bottom of the pool and his maroon Rolls Royce outside and a little piece of England and Yorkshire. Yeah. Where did it all go Palm wrong? Spring. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And he was, uh, he got brilliant views on the, what the National Health Service should do. You know, he wanted technology bringing in, and that's going back into the early 2000s he was talking about that. And he said to me, do you want to come back for lunch tomorrow? I've got a friend coming for lunch, and it was a chap called George England, who I'd never heard of. Turns out he was Marlon Brando's best friend, and he wrote a, a biography of Marlon Brando. He'd uh, produced a film with Anthony Quinn that was nominated for an Oscar called The Shoes of the Fisherman. And, and so it opened doors yeah. to me that I never, ever knew. And it was thanks to Lord Hanson that I met Arnold Schwarzenegger. Right. So there's, there's two. Is there a third you'd take to this table? Uh, if, uh, if I was going to be a name dropper, I'd say... Um, Tom Jones, I interviewed him right. when I was in London. And it's funny, I was doing an event in Manchester for a wealth management business at, at the Lowry Hotel last week, and Tom Jones was in the restaurant. And somebody said to me, are you going to go over and say hello to him? I said, he won't remember me. Yeah. But I interviewed him in London in the late 90s when he was singing with the London Welsh Male Voice Choir, yeah. and they were practising ahead of a, a Wales game at Wembley. Uh, and I think he would tell you some stories. Yeah. Um, he would really, uh, you know, he's lived a life, hasn't he, from the 60s <laughs> get to that now. Impression. And he's still at the top. You know, he still can fill a stadium. Yeah. Uh, so I'd definitely say Tom Jones. And and one other one, I wouldn't quite say I interviewed her, but I met the Queen when she came to uh, Leeds for her um, 
her jubilee and there was a reception put on for business people at Leeds Civic Hall and we're all in small groups and they said the Queen's going to come in she may speak to one group of about 20 groups in the room and she actually spoke to everyone and I was introduced to her I wasn't as the journalist in the room I wasn't supposed to be introduced but she talked to me and she asked me how business in Leeds was um, and she and I said things are going well um, and I said a lot of the law firms were opening up new offices Mm -hmm. and she said oh well that's very interesting because of course they always used to have their offices around the train stations and do you think that's uh, are they moving back into the cities and I just she came across as somebody that was interested in the people she met had I mean you think of one individual Chris in the world that's since the end of the Second World War, she's met every significant individual that's probably Absolutely. ever lived or done anything. Now, if I could persuade her to talk, she'd be a good dinner party de- guest. She might have been keeping she? a little diary, you never know. Absolutely. Uh, when they publish it, let's hope they get a mention. Um, so, I like to ask this question of people, David, um, and, and indeed I have guest speakers who come in and talk to my younger staff about this. What, what what do you wish somebody had told you when you were 23? Or what, what advice could you give to 23-year-old David Parkin today? Ugh, uh, probably an awful lot, because you make so many mistakes, don't you? I remember my, my dad telling me before I uh, left home to go off and do my degree, his advice was always buy the first round. <laughs> <laughs> because nobody, nobody, everybody will want to sort of always be with you, but equally, you'll never owe anybody anything. Yeah. Um, and, and a friend of mine, um, he gave his kids advice when they left home, to, and he said, remember, when you're talking, you're not listening and you're not learning. And, and I've always, you know, I think as a journalist, that tends to be your mantra anyway. I think... Grab opportunities when they come, Chris. That's one thing that I hope I've done, but I've probably missed out on things. You know, even if you don't think you can possibly do something, have a go and mm. and make the mistakes while you're doing it. Don't be afraid to make the mistakes and not do it at all. Um, and and I think I think in this modern era of um, technology, smartphones, social media, talk to people, make make face to face. Have face-to-face conversations, build relationships face-to-face because those are the people that are going to matter. You know, I, I always think that uh, if you've if you've built relationships with people, there's so much that that can come back to you. And a, another friend of mine, Martin Allison, uh, he's an ex-Royal Bank of Scotland guy, uh, but now he's an entrepreneur. The one thing I would say that I've seen in Martin is somebody that always gives before thinking what he's going to get back. And I think the more you do that, the more probably comes back to you. You don't quite know when, but I've always thought, well, if I can do somebody a favour, I will, because I'll feel good, they'll hopefully benefit, and you never know what might happen in the end. Absolutely. And and in all truth, David, we're sat here today, aren't we, because we've met each other and spoken to each other, not because we've emailed each other repeatedly for the last 10, 12 years. Absolutely. You know. Yes, well, I, I could never miss your uh, loud coats and suits around town, Chris. <laughs> Luckily, this is uh, all only audio, so you, <laughs> you're spared that, folks. Well, thank you for that, David. I really appreciate you coming in. It's uh, just a little insight there. I'm sure you could write a book about the people you've met, um, and perhaps we'll have you back to do round two of that, actually. We'll see We'll see what the feedback is. But that was that was great. Uh, I always meet, enjoy meeting David. I admire him for his professionalism around town and how he's built a network and and again that's a message i certainly share with our staff here so i hope you've enjoyed that uh, podcast it's just a short one but uh, david's quite a character if you and david if people want to contact you how do they contact you what's the 
Best way to get hold of you? I think uh, on email, david at copagroup.co.uk. I produce a weekly blog, uh, which goes out to uh, several thousand people around uh, Yorkshire and beyond. Um, And, you know, delighted if they'd like to uh, sign up to that. Uh, Drop me a line um, and we can we can arrange that always like new readers yeah of course this may uh, we, feature this friday chris that's right oh, really well i'll behave myself then as we finish uh thank you for listening if you'd be so kind as to uh give some feedback uh itunes are dead keen that people give feedback stars or comments uh preferably positive but uh, it's a free country so uh, say what you like but thanks for listening uh and i'll be back with another one soon cheers thanks